friends, Greg Kokel here. Stand to Reason is the show, and I am your host now for 33 years and running, although it hasn't always been called Stand to Reason, but uh wasn't long before we started. Actually, when Stand to Reason started 29 years ago, that's when we took the show that had this format, and I was at my flagship station, uh, KBRT in Southern California with the Crawford Broadcasting Network, and they gave me a shot gave me the mic, and I didn't know what I was doing. I just said, go, and off I went. <laughs> and the first couple of years, a little rocky because I didn't like the format. But when I got into this format, this kind of thing we do with SCR, that was my, that that worked for me. And uh, it's been working for ever since. So uh, that's, uh, that's what we're, uh, that's what we've been doing for a long time. And uh, thank you for listening. And, and um, that when I, when I, talk to people who listen and have been listening a long time. And sometimes when they first discover, they do tell me they go back in the archives and listen to everything that they missed. It's very flattering. It's humbling to me, but it gives me confidence that uh, after all these years, I'm still making a difference. Uh, sometimes you think you're talking to yourself, you know, and uh, here's the mic. Um, there's the screen. And, uh, but there's a couple of lights flashing means at least two people are listening. Uh, before I get to those calls though, um, I, I want to talk about um, Tim Keller and uh, his uh, a tweet that he offered, actually a series of tweets that he offered recently that really disturbed me. And um, I'm not entirely sure how to take them. I'm going to read them to you and respond to it as I read. That it disturbs me uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that I, I have a lot of respect for Tim Keller. I've listened to his tapes, his sermons, and I've been helped tremendously by some of the things he's taught. There was a season where I was listening, you know, a regular basis just to Tim Keller, and I benefited from him. And uh, so I have a lot of respect for him. He uh, was the pastor of Redeemer Prez in uh, what, Manhattan, speaking to a very cosmopolitan crowd and deftly, I think, maneuvering in that kind of atmosphere with biblical Christianity, even though it's a New York crowd. And my understanding, my sense is there are a lot of non-believers that attend his group, and they're very uh, culturally and theologically liberal, or maybe not even religious at all, but still show up. And so he has, he casts a broad net, and I, I think that's a great strength. Um, he He's written a, a couple of apologetics books, The Reason for God, which is always up at the top 10 of the evangelism bestsellers, and another one, which name I can't remember right now, but it was the one I reviewed for Christianity Today and gave it very high marks because it was so nicely done. And it turned out to be the Christianity Today uh, Evangelism Book of the Year, uh, the year before the story of reality was evangelism uh, book of the year, and somebody else reviewed mine. So uh, I was glad that, that they printed my review there in CT, and Tim's book was great. What troubles me sometimes is that when he starts, it feels like a lot of times when he talks about cultural issues, he is being very careful not to... Uh, I have to be careful even how I say this, not to step on the toes of leftists unnecessarily. And sometimes I think he is too careful. In other words, those people who are left of center in their ideology, their 
social, cultural, religious views. Um, and these are views that I think are clearly not biblical. All right. Um, it, 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 it just sometimes I, it begins to feel like confusion. So this, in other words, like Tim is confused. Now, I don't, it seems strange to say that because he's such a brilliant guy and he's contributed so much. But, and maybe when he's writing this, he means one thing, but it sounds another way. Amy and I were talking about it and trying to figure out, well, you know, what's the charitable take on this? But I had a hard time finding it. And there were other people that were concerned about what was written here, too. So let me just read the piece to you. Apparently he wrote, he sent a couple of tweets <clears throat> that he felt were misunderstood. Those are the first ones that I'll read. And then he offered a follow-up with a bunch more tweets that, in my view, didn't help his circumstances at all. Now, this is from April 29th this year. And the first tweet said, Churches must not maintain unity at the expense of the gospel. Good start. Churches must not maintain unity at the expense of the gospel. When it comes to the question of what the gospel is, this is where we have to draw hard and fast lines. And if people are compromising on the gospel, then we oppose them, even within the church. We, are, we, we, we can justify breaking unity with other Christians or others that claim to be Christian when the gospel itself is being compromised. Now, I'm seeing the gospel here in a very uh, narrow range, you know, the good news of salvation through Christ. That's what I mean. Not the gospel writ broad where everything becomes gospel, okay? Because then the gospel is nothing. In particular, it's just everything, and that's the way sometimes people will make it. But I think this is a good start. Then he says, churches should not destroy unity. So now this is by contrast, or fellowship over political differences. Okay, so this is where a question comes in. Because the difficulty is that now politics consumes everything. There is not an area of morality, it seems, that politics has not infringed on. Um, oh, may, they haven't weighed in on whether in baptism we should sprinkle or dip or immerse, but those are clearly purely sectarian matters. Every place else, uh, re religiously sectarian, but every place else that we thought was ours over the years, morally speaking, now politics has encroached. I've talked about this before. So now there's a question. Does he? What does he mean by political differences? Because there are policy issues, politics, weighing in on lots of things. Did you know that starting June 1st in California, it is illegal for a restaurant to give you a plastic spoon unless you ask for it? It is against the law. A, star stock, a Starbucks wooden stir stick, they cannot give that to you unless you ask for it. It's against the laws. I mean, so this is how ridiculous things have gotten, at least in the golden state of California, but it's everywhere. Okay, so what political differences are we talking about? Well, then in the next tweet, he gives some detail. 
Here are two biblical moral norms. Moral is all caps. That's like he's almost shouting it. Here are two biblical moral norms. One, it is a sin to worship idols or any god other than the true God. And two, do not murder. Yeah, those are two big biblical moral norms. But notice that this, these two biblical moral norms follow his point about political differences. So wait a minute, how does this relate to biblical differences? If you ask evangelicals if we should be forbidden by law to worship any other God than the God of the Bible, they'd say no. We allow that terrible sin to be legal. But if you ask them if Americans should be forbidden by law to abort a baby, they'd say yes. Now notice that aborting a baby in this tweet is parallel with do not murder in the earlier tweet. Okay? So he is equating abortion with murder. Then he asks this question, why make the first sin legal and never talk about it, that is idolatry, and the second sin illegal and, and, and a main moral political talking point? I cannot believe that he asks this question, as if there's some parity here with regards to policy issues. The fact is, we do have policies against murder. It's called homicide statutes. We don't have religious statutes, that is, we don't have statutes against religious activities like idolatry, but we do have statutes against homicide. Now, I I hesitate to try to make the distinction between the two because it strikes me that making that distinction is not necessary. One is an evil but is strictly religious and sectarian. The other one is an evil that has to do with the common good. And of course, in every policy issue, one have, uh, I should say every moral issue, one has to decide, and this is part of the role of government and legislators and debate, open debate and discussion, as to whether a thing that is immoral has enough impact on the common welfare to be actionable under law. Just because it's immoral doesn't mean we make it illegal. I get it. But there are some things that are clear case examples. Idolatry strikes me as a clear case example of a deeply immoral thing that should not be made illegal. The only place it was ever made illegal was in the theocracy. Under Israel, under the theocratic, theocratic government of God. Okay, um, and by the way, God did bring judgment upon others for being idolatrous, but that was God's sovereign action. He did not make that, as far as I know, anywhere an appropriate matter of public policy for these Gentile nations. However, when it comes to murder. How can you have a society that functions for the common good and general welfare of the people, punishment of evildoers, the praise of those who do right, that doesn't proscribe homicide? But what Tim Keller has done now is he said he's taken a homicide companion with abortion and saying, raising the question, if we don't make, if we don't make idolatry illegal, why is it that we we, we we feel just fine about making a big fuss about abortion. I'll tell you why. Because abortion kills babies. Abortion is murder 
in God's eyes. So it's a totally different category. It's just like homicide of any other human being in our society, any other citizen. On a moral level, it's exactly the same from a Christian perspective. Now, what stuns me is why doesn't it, why does Tim Keller even bring this up? Well, I think the reason he brings it up is because it's a contentious political, quote-unquote, issue. Because some people think it's okay to kill babies, and some people, unborn babies, and other people don't think it's okay to kill unborn. So there's a political difference there. So are we going to divide on a political difference? Are we going to break fellowship on a political difference? Um, On this one? Yes. Now, break fellowship, I mean, I don't know exactly the degree to which he has this in mind, but certainly I would oppose a person who claimed to be a Christian who is pro-abortion. Because the Bible is clear to me that the unborn are the same individuals that they become when they're born. And all you have to do is read Luke chapter 2, make that Luke chapter 1 to find that out. John the Baptist, as a second trimester um, uh, fetus, is filled with the Holy Spirit in the presence of a zygote, Jesus of Nazareth, inside of Mary. It's crystal clear right there in Luke chapter 1. Okay, that means John and Jesus were themselves when they were in the womb, and killing the abortion of the zygote or the fetus in either case would have been killing, respectively, Jesus or John the Baptist, the very people. Okay, rigidly characterized. They are themselves just in the earliest stages of their development. So this is not hard to figure out. This is not like, we're not sure about this. Of course we're sure about it. We all know this. And by the way, you don't need the Bible. Every mother knows this. That's why she talks about her baby as the baby is growing inside of her, unless she doesn't want it, and then it's a blob of tissue. But that's just a rhetorical trick. We should not be taken in by that. If abortion is murder— then we ought to make a fuss about that with Christians who say abortion is fine. And labeling it as a political difference does not sanitize it at all. What about slavery? I'm serious. What about slavery? Now, in another show, I think it was last hour, I mentioned there were 300,000 African slaves in this country. That's about as many babies that are aborted in just four or five months in this country, and that's been going on for 48 years. With the black slaves, they simply enslaved them, though there were some murders and killing and acknowledge that. But in abortion, there's no slavery. It is every single one of those children is killed. So I think killing them, murder, is different than slavery on an individual basis. It's a more egregious moral act. But we would never countenance this idea as as Christians, I would think, biblical Christians, that slavery is just a political issue and we should not, you know, break our unity or fellowship 
make a big deal about slavery. No one would say that. Yet abortion is 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 uh, is uh, uh, more egregious by massive orders of magnitude. No comparison. No comparison. So why why this fuss? And and I think this is my own judgment. It's because it's a politically sensitive issue, and so we shouldn't be fussing. He continues now with more explanation. At the very least, it shows a lack of knowing how to apply apply the Bible to politics. Since we simply can't say, if the Bible says it's a sin, it should be illegal, then how do we choose which morals to politically champion? Now, I agree with the point. We can't just say, if the Bible says it's a sin, it should be illegal, because that doesn't work. Uh, It becomes... If you did that, you create such a ridiculous totalitarian thing. Every time somebody sells a fib, then they'd be punished. It's actionable. Now, you can't tell a fib in court under oath because that has wide-ranging ramifications for the fabric of civilization. But other sin, other lies, no, they're not actionable. Okay, and that's as it should be. And as he points out, don't say to me, um, where is it here? I just want to see the Ten Commandments made law in society. That's, as he puts it, that's too simplistic, and we don't do this already. I agree with that. The Bible tells us that idolatry, abortion, and ignoring the poor are all grievous sins. So he acknowledges abortion as a grievous sin, and he's made it parallel with murder up above. But it doesn't tell us exactly how... We are to apply these norms to a pluralistic society. Now, I, I actually agree with this point, but it, it but it seems to me since his approach now is since it doesn't tell us how to do it, that it's kind of a jump ball, and that there's no better answers than other answers. And he talks about helping the poor here. I'm not going to read every bit of it. He talks about um, uh, immigrants and some other hot-button issues here, and seems to assume that um, one legitimate approach is that the government is involved in this in certain ways, but I'm not going to go into all that. Let me just stick with the one he started with, which is abortion. And he's including it with these other things. I think deciding how to deal with the poor is a challenge, all right? Incidentally, it is not a government responsibility in the Bible to deal with the poor. It is an individual responsibility in the Bible, or the group which is God's people, which would be Israel or the church. It isn't the government, as we understand it now. That is not the model in the Bible. As if we can, uh, like Corban, you know, we'd say, well, that's Corban. We can avoid our own responsibilities by saying the government's going to take care of it. I gave it the office, right? I gave my taxes. Uh, That's Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge mentality. Is the poorhouse still operating? All right. Uh, Well, that's good, because I support that. So why should I be giving charity? Well, that's the mentality there, when the government takes over. No, charity is for individuals or groups of individuals that are God's people. And as a group, they collectively and voluntarily give. That's the way you help the poor. You don't just drag that in underneath the rubric of government, 
it seems to me. But he goes in these different examples. Here's the trouble that I have, especially, and I think there's places for debate, but there are also some issues that are beyond the pale for debate, and abortion has to be one of it. Anyway, as I read this whole thing, I, I just made a note to myself. I said, really, really sad, because there's a man of, of this stature can author a string like this, which is so confused. There's more confusion. I just didn't get into it. I don't have time. I'd rather stick with the most obvious example of the kind of thing that we that it's called political now that we ought to, in fact, um, um, act against, and that is abortion. Because even by Tim Keller's characterization, it is murder. And there is no comparison to that and idolatry as a public policy issue. Just like he said, we can't take everything that's wrong and make it illegal. So we have to, at some point, make a judgment. So no to idolatry and yes to murder. And if abortion murders an innocent human being, then abortion should also be outlawed and criminalized even at some level, just like homicide is. I think the best approach here is to determine biblically what public or community issues are appropriate for believers to campaign for. Say, punishment of evil, praise or do good. That's right in the Bible. We can campaign for that. Defend, defending the genuinely oppressed. That would be examples slavery, abortion, tyranny. Those are examples of genuinely oppressed people that we campaign on behalf of those who are victims. Um, and what we ought to be doing is promoting freedom. These are all biblical. These are all based on biblical ethics. We should be involved in doing that, and helping the poor and where there's injustice on the border with immigrants, genuine injustice. Then we ought to be speaking out against injustice. Okay. Now, when, uh, when, when any of these issues um, touch on on uh, on policy things, well, then we we promote the good with regards to the policy there, and we have to determine the means that are most effective to accomplish those godly biblical ends. And if these issues overlap policy issues, then so be it. That doesn't mean we're trying to get political. We're just trying to be faithful Christians in our community. And the biggest problem, as I've noted before, and I just mentioned, is that all the moral and ethical issues of concern to Christians have been co-opted by the government, have become political. We're not interested in getting political as such. We are interested in doing our jobs as virtuous people in the community. The fact that this involves more politics now, it's actually not a result of the church getting more political necessarily. It's rather the result of policy issues encroaching more and more on what used to be the province of the private citizens and their families and their faith communities. We're not invading them. They've invaded us. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Had to get political when the Reich invaded and countermanded New Testament church polity with the Arian paragraph. You can't have any Jews that are Christians, ethnic Jews that are in leadership in your church. That's not for you to say, Adolf. 
This is Christ's church, and he gets to say. And that's when Dietrich Bonhoeffer put his foot down. He had no choice. And with all these issues, we have to make assessments. The border issues, the poor issues, whatever. Of How do we best apply our, our biblical ethic? But some things are certainly more grave than others. And in those circumstances, we have to put our foot down. And when we, it's with other Christians, well then, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We tell our brothers and sisters in Christ, what you're campaigning for is wrong. It is ungodly, it is unholy, and it is an offense before God. And here I'm speaking clearly and obviously of abortion. How Tim Keller can pull the reins in on people who are pro-life as if they're acting inappropriately by legislating something that should not be legislated, but it's a matter of personal opinion, to me is stunning. But that seems to be what he's saying here. Anyway, enough of that. Let's uh, take a break and then come to your calls here on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group, helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude, like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email oceanwilson at ocean at str.org. Okay, time for your calls, friends. Uh, let's go to uh, a flashing red light means Corey from Oregon. Hey, Corey, welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, glad to. Hey, um, I want you to know that I um, I think that um, that you're great and STR is great, and I agree with 95 or more percent of everything you say. So I'm calling to talk to you about something that we probably disagree a little bit about, a mi- relatively minor issue. Okay. So I'm so I'm saying all that to let you know that, that uh, we're on the same team, in case I come right. off the recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to divide over this issue, right? No, no. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so 
I have been um, I'm, I've been puzzled over the use of um, knowledge to mean justified true belief, and mm-hmm. so I want to start out by asking a question, okay. and um, not to get too um, Rene Descartes on you, but um, I, the question is this: I have of course, a a wide range of propositions that I believe are true. Mm -hmm. And let's just say for the sake of argument that these, that I have um, good justification for believing all these things. In Mm -hmm. some cases, overwhelming justification. Right. How can I know if, if, um, if believing these things is knowledge only in cases where they happen to be true, then how can I know which of these things I know and which of these things I don't? You know, when I took um, epistemology many years ago at Talbot in my MA Phil program, it was a very question that I had, because this seems to be an odd definition. Now, keep in mind, philosophers are known for... um, precision, attempting to uh, divide up the world by its joints, as it were, and be more precise and define things more clearly so we discover distinctions that are important when we're trying to understand something. And so when it comes to the word knowledge, and epistemology is all about how you know what you know, then uh, they have to make a definition. And so they worked with different things, and they came up with this this formula, the JTB formula, called Justified True Belief. And the reason that they use that is because it doesn't seem to make sense to say that a belief you have is knowledge if it's not true. Also, if it's true, but you got lucky and you didn't get to it by the right reasons, it's also not knowledge. And so this is why they, this is the, the formal definition of knowledge. Um, but there's also been some, some uh, I'm trying to remember the name of them. There's some counterexamples of a famous paper that was very short that just shook the whole philosophical world up to demonstrate that well, there can be circumstances where you have uh, views that are justified and true, but they wouldn't be knowledge. And it's just, they're, they're, I can't remember the Galanter examples or whatever they call them. But so the philosophical field is still a little bit in flux trying to nail down a precise definition of knowledge. Okay. Mm-hmm. That aside, though. Um, and I think your point, there seems to be a kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to say circularity because that's not quite the word I want to use, but there's a dog chasing his tail here, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing that it's justified. If it's, you know, it's knowledge if it's justified and it's true, but then how do you know if it's true? You know, it, it's, it's just, you're run around. So, right. So if there's, um, if that's the definition that we're going to use, then it seems to me that there's a bunch of things that I believe, and then there's a subset of those things, which are things that I know, and um, I can I can know things, but I can't know which things I know. Yeah, see, because there's no way to get outside of the justification circle to know which ones are a- actually true. Okay, yeah. so so here's the way I encourage you, uh, 
to to look at this, and and I understand exactly what you're seeing. And in my first class, JTB, this is the same question I had, exactly the same question. I think you should word use the word true in that JTB as kind of a formality. It is a way of saying, well, you can't actually say it's knowledge if it's not if it doesn't actually turn out to be true. On a functional level, what we have to do is look at our justification. Okay, mm-hmm. and since we can't get out of our justification paradigm to see whether a thing is true, we can only see if our justification seems to indicate it's true, then that's what we have to work with. And things that, there are some things that we are, that are very, very well justified. And, um, and I feel confident because they are so well justified in, uh, in saying that it's true. You mentioned Descartes, famous, famously cogito Ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Now, I think that that constitutes knowledge because it is. It seems to be necessarily true. In order for me to think, I have to exist. Right, but Descartes ran into the same thing because he said, "This thing that I know is the only thing that I can know." Pretty much. Well, I I don't I don't know if that's the case. He was starting. He was trying to find a foundation of things that were certain. That were absolutely indubitable would be a better put it way to put it. Yeah, that they're not I'm, doubtable because of the because of the nature of the claim. So um, I think therefore I am as a place that he started. But I'm just I'm not trying to advance the Cartesian system. I'm just trying to point out that that's an example of something that you have such good justification for. You could say you know it. I know I exist. Why? Because I'm thinking about whether I exist or not. Okay, so there may be other things. I cannot be an atheist. It's not possible for me to be an atheist because I know too much. When I think about the origin of the universe and the evidence for the origin of the universe and the and a whole host of other arguments that point to God as the most as the most appropriate um, answer for explanation of explanatory power. Those things are so compelling, it's hard to imagine how I could be in error. Now, it, it might be that I'm mistaken. Lots of things that people are certain about, they're just wrong about. Yeah. Uh, and because certitude is a psychological quality that can be caused in a number of different ways. And uh, it's something ir- irrespective of the facts themselves. Okay, But, but when I look at the, the, the evidence mounting up, I I can't will myself to be an atheist, all right? So I think that when I say God exists, I know that he exists. I think I'm well within my justification. And if a person disagrees with that, I'm going to say, well, give me your reasons. And when I hear their reasons, they're, 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 they're vacuous. They're just vacuous. And so uh, that's why I'm not compelled by them. And um, so consequently, I, I feel completely justified in saying, I know that God exists. Now, there are other things where my confidence might not be 100%, they might be 90% or 95 or 85 or whatever. And in those areas, I'm confident I'm getting it right, whether I want to use the knowledge word or not, um, is ir- irrelevant. It has to do with my confidence level of my view and that it is tied to the rationale, the reasons, the evidence for holding the view. That is the key. Yeah, 
I've, I've had discussions with people um, about this before and been accused of being one of these people. This is because I didn't communicate well. I was, became, uh, I was accused of being one of these people who doubt everything. And I said, well, no, I believe that we can know things. I just, if, if we're going to take this definition of JTB for knowledge, we can't know that we know them for the most part. Mm-hmm. Now I can, to give a kind of a, a weird example, um, there was a, there was a moment in my life when I believed I had been shot in the stomach. Hmm. Um, it turns out that was a very, very vivid dream. And <clears throat> when I woke up from the dream, I no longer believed that. Huh. But when I woke up, I had a pain in my stomach like one I had never experienced before, <laughs> which went away after about a half an hour. Yeah. Now, I believed at one point that I had been shot in the stomach, and I believed shortly thereafter that I had a pain. Um, and both of those beliefs, given the circumstances, were warranted. But only one of them was true. And interestingly, the one that turned out to be true is the one that I could not be mistaken about. That's right. Yes, it, you, that's, there's an incorrigible feature of, of those kinds of sensational, as in sensations, experiences. Okay, that's yeah. a, there's an incorrigibility about that. And uh, that's not true of everything we think we know. But I think if you just set aside the philosophical definition for a minute— uh, because of that dog chasing his tail kind of problem there, and we just look at the justification that we have, I think there are times we could say we really know something to be the case based on the justification we have. It's appropriate to use that word, even though it is possible we're mistaken. And incidentally, I'm not sure that the dream example is a fair example, because by your acknowledgement, in that case, there is an altered state of consciousness. So there's no, going to be not, distortion of beliefs. I have it's a dream. not a very clean example. Pardon me? It's not a very clean example. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a recurring dream that I've murdered somebody. And in my dream, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I did murder. Did I? Am I dreaming? Am I? But here's the rule, though. If you think, if you're asking yourself whether you're dreaming or not, then you're dreaming. <laughs> because you yeah. never ask that of waking moments. Because they have a forceful, um, um, what's the word, um, a, a for, a forceful sense to them, a forceful feel to them. The phenomenology is is so forceful that it seems clear that you're not mistaken in that case. But there are people who have thought, who have thought uh, um, uh, disabilities, um, and uh, and and they they think one thing that's in, totally inconsistent with reality. So. Um, I would not. I think it's there's a difference between doubting everything and and questioning things. And uh, the 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 person who doubts everything ought to doubt his doubts. You know, mm-hmm. so that that doubt thing or is skeptical of everything ought to be skeptical of his skepticism. It seems to me there are lots of things you could be very confident about, confident enough to to put your life on the line for. If you're going to put your life on the line for something, um, then then I uh, I think you can call that knowledge. Yeah, yeah, and I even I, you though know, you could honestly, be mistaken, like Muslim terrorists, for example. But 
yeah, yeah. For, I think for me, the truth is, I, I, I hate to put myself, you know, up against uh, the entire philosophical discipline, but um, it's it, I'm I'm more of a um, a specialist in speech communication than I am philosophy, and because of that, I, I think it's unfortunate when. We take a word which we all understood to mean something. Um, in this case, knowledge. Every, everybody who's not a philosopher thinks that what that means is, I believe something with a high level of confidence. Um, you know, the practical definition. Yeah, just if you got a high level of justification, and that's what gives you the confidence. Um, well, preferably justification, but I would say even that even if a person believes something strongly without good reasons, as it turns out, they would assert that they still know it. Yeah. And when well, they use that word, they may be, it may not be well-founded, but they're communicating something about their state of mind. Yeah. Accurately. Well, okay, I, I get that. But I, I'm going to have to run to another call here, but let me just leave it at this. I would encourage you not get not to get tripped up by the JTB kind of definition, and just look at the things you believe and ask about the justification for them. And sometimes the justification is going to be overwhelming and, 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 uh, and, and, and to so much so that the, the conclusion is indubitable. It's, it's even incorrigible. It can't be mistaken, like I think, therefore I am. But other things we could be mistaken about, and if they're really important, we got to be more careful about our justification, make sure we get it right. So let's just leave it at that for now. Is that all right, Corey? Yep. Thanks, Greg. All right. Good conversation. Thanks so much for the call. Let's go to Philip. Um, there you go. Philip in Florence, Arizona. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, well, a couple things. Uh, if I could make a couple comments real quick, then I'll get to my question. I know you're short on time. Uh, first thing I wanted to say was thank you um, for what you do. Um, mm. And I'm going to try not to get emotional on this phone call <laughs> so I can keep things going. But um, uh, Well, you're so welcome. I'll say that. Yeah, I, I literally thank God for what you do and bringing you to this planet and putting you here to do what you do. So mm, thank, um, you. thank you for that. Um, sure. I have an ironic, what do I call it, in non-emotional slash emotional connection with, with you um, based on what you said about not having the uh, – you know, the feeling side of, of your Christian walk with, yeah, that comes uh, you know, the goes. hands in the air. Right, yeah. Right. And for many, many years, I felt alone in that until I heard you discuss it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first times I heard you speak. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was ironic that I had this emotional response to that being mm-hmm. that I'm not that emotional person. <laughs> so, it, you know, it is uh, I, have, I have two engineering degrees. I'm very logical and straightforward and mathematic and scientific on things. Yeah. Well, so sometimes it was, just, it was, it's just the way we're wired. I mean, that's gotta be part of it. I agree. Yeah. Okay. But seeing how everybody else was at church, you know, a lot of the time I felt like I was missing something for many yeah. years. And now I realize that mm-hmm. our gifts are just different, but, um, anyway, uh, that's, that's a whole nother subject, but, um, So anyway, uh, my question, I don't know if it's a question, um, and I don't want to turn your show into an episode of, you know, George Ory, but um, (laughs) when I was younger, uh, I had an experience, a supernatural experience, I believe, uh, where I saw a being. uh, And to this day, it's as vivid as it was then. And Hmm. um, I don't know if I should describe to you what happened, but I saw this, this being, and it looked at me. I looked at it, kind of tilted its head. It was the form of a man. Um, it was jet black, 
uh, eyes like the stars. It was something, in a way, a lot of experiences that people talk about how they can't really describe something. Uh huh. In, um, ineffable. That's how it feels. Ineffable is the word there. Yeah, it's just hard to put your finger yeah. on. Okay. Right. You have people who've had experiences like in heaven and things like that. Um, right. You know, that, so are, that's the thing they say is there's nothing. There's no way to no way describe to describe it. In it. An so are, are you are, are you wanting me to weigh in on the the um, legitimacy of that experience or the uh, veridicality of it, whether you experience something true or not, or... Um, more or less, what I wanted to know was, um, for decades, I have struggled with why this thing happened, if it was meant to be for something bigger, and feeling guilty for never using it for maybe bringing people to the Lord or something else because I was afraid to share it because I thought people would look at me like the Golden Fleece crowd of right, crazies. Right, right. Well, let, you know, me, let um, me speak to that. Let me speak to that, though, because on the right. one hand, supernatural experiences are part of our shared worldview. We live in a magical world after a fashion, okay? And so um, we live in a world in which these kinds of things not only are possible, they they do happen. And so if we think one happens to us, that's certainly co- consistent with our worldview, okay? Now, any given manifestation, though, um, whether that is, when you say supernatural, I, this, there's a range of things there. So it could be a natural experience that we are having that feels supernatural, could be a psychotic experience. Okay, for example, or it could be a supernatural manifestation, something outside of us, not something inside of us, um, for some reason. Now, here's here's what I think may help you. Let's just say that for the sake of discussion, it was outside of you. It wasn't psychotic inside. It was outside of you. Okay, and then you're asking the question, why did I experience this? And what was I supposed to do? And maybe I didn't do what I was supposed to do with it. And that's why you feel a little guilty. And my response is, if there was a supernatural manifestation from God for some purpose, the only way you can know that purpose is for God to tell you. And I was just reading in, uh, oh, I was reading in First Kings, Samuel, not Samuel, Saul of Solomon, they all had S's. Solomon has gets a communication from God. God says, ask me what you want, I'll give it to you, and he asks for wisdom. Okay, you know the um, the account. All of that happened in a dream. And um, it says there, then Solomon awoke, and he realized he was dreaming. So this was a dream that was so vivid, he didn't even realize he was dreaming, but it was an actual communication from God, because all the things that God promised he would give him, he got. And so there were manifestations of the wisdom in his life, and the riches in his life, and the power and the fame that were all part of the package that God gave to him. Okay, so there you have information from God about the nature of the thing and what's going to take place as a result. Sometimes there's an angel that visits, like, for example, an angel visits Peter in prison, and the angel says, get up and get out of here. And when Peter gets out, then he realizes he wasn't dreaming because there was a directive that was given that got him out of prison. So there's some additional information that is included in any divinely given 
supernatural event like that that verifies it or at least um, makes clear what the purpose or the job the person was meant to do regarding that revelation. You had none of that. So how could you be held responsible for anything related to what you experienced if there was no information given regarding that? Now, I can't tell you was it inside or outside, but it seems to me it's not God appearing to you for some purpose or an angel. Angels are messengers. Messengers bring messages, information. There was nothing but this experience. I had an experience like that when I was a kid, too. It looked a little different, but it was so vivid for me at the time, I can still kind of see it in my mind's eye. And it was when I was sleeping, and then I, it was shook me up so much, I woke up, and then I realized I was dreaming. But I felt at the time as a junior high kid that I'd seen God or something like that. What was right. it? Well, I think I was. it was just me. That's my suspicion, because there was no purpose to it. There was no end or telos for that thing that I could determine, so I just let it go. I just had this crazy experience, you know, whatever. And so may I would not lose any sleep about this, and I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't feel guilty about it. I'd encourage you because there's nothing that you could have done. You're not going to advance the gospel because you saw this black figure with starry eyes. How does, that doesn't advance right. the gospel. And people are just going to assume, well, you had a dream. It was in your head. So I don't. I please don't worry about it. Okay, Philip, I, I don't, I'm not even going to weigh in on whether it's veridical or not. You experienced something, but I don't know if it was outside right. or inside you, but it's not relevant to anything else now. It's one of those things, chalk it up to whatever, but you're not amiss because you haven't used it since you had no way of knowing how you ought to have used it to begin with. Okay. Does that help? Man, All that right. is... Okay, good. Yeah, that's uh, an insight that I didn't even think about is the the messenger part of it. Okay. And, and tearing through things. I couldn't, I told the, uh, your calling interview Amy. person, the, yeah, that, uh, you know, I had scoured the Bible looking for anything that might say, hey, here's what you do in this situation. Yeah. Uh, but, um, no, all, yeah. of the, all of the visit, all supernatural events had a purpose, and the purpose was clear in the event themselves. So following the biblical model, the thing you experienced wasn't like anything in the Bible. So I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. Got to go, Philip, but it was good talking okay. to you. I hope this helps. Sleep, okay. sleep well, all right? Yeah, thank all right. you so much. All right, buddy. Bye-bye now. All right, let's go to uh, Matthew in Santa Clara. Matthew, welcome to the show. Hello, Greg. How are you today? I'm I'm doing okay. It's been a good day. It's uh, running late. I'm just looking. you got like five and a half minutes. I'm sorry to give this short trip. But uh, so well, let's just jump right to it. All right. Um, well, I am a college student, and um, as such, I am currently living in an apartment near my campus. And I have a friend of mine who's moving in this summer, and because he's moving in, I've been getting to know him better. We've been hanging out. Yeah. And we had a conversation recently about God, and what I discovered was that he has a background in Christianity mm-hmm. because his uh, parents, mainly his mother, are Christian. Um, and so he understands a decent amount, but he himself identifies 
specifically as agnostic. Okay. Um, and we had an interesting back and forth talking about Christian beliefs, not really broaching on trying to convince him or anything. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was kind of a weird conversation. I didn't know how to talk to him um, because he just said he was agnostic. Okay. Um, well, let me give I, you. I struggle me, with this in general. Let me offer you a suggestion. There are there are actually two kinds of agnostics, and my question first would be: Okay, not agnostic. I get that. What kind of agnostic are you? Okay. Now there are two kinds of agnostics. Of course, agnostic means you don't know. The first kind of agnostic, we'll call it that, a, a soft agnostic, is somebody who doesn't know. I don't know. It could be this or it could be that. I don't know. And maybe I will know someday, but I don't know now. I'm kind of on the fence with regards to spiritual things. Okay, that's a soft agnostic. I'm using that term. Then you got a hard agnostic. And what a hard agnostic says, and this is a much stronger claim, they say, I don't know, and nobody knows. The reason I don't know is because what we're talking about is not knowable. Now, that's a very different kind of animal. I, th- I think that person is mistaken. But if they say, I-, I don't know, the first kind of agnostic, I might ask him, well, what kind of ideas have you considered regarding some of these things? Just curious. Uh, the existence of God, for example, or whatever, and let, let him talk. And But if he says, well, this is the kind of thing that nobody can know, well, that's a much stronger claim, and it's controversial. Why would you say nobody could know this? Well, you can't know anything about spiritual things. Really? Well, that actually sounds like a statement about spiritual things. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like you know, you know. Um, but why would you say that? I, I'd want them to give me the reasons why it's not possible to know something about the non-physical world, which is what spiritual things relate to or refer to or whatever. I'm not sure. I just need to know that from them. I'd let them talk and find out. So I think part of the reason you might have been a little confused about how to proceed is because you you didn't know what you were up against. And this is why the approach that I encourage, which is a tactical approach uh, and using questions, um, the first question is always going to be, what do you mean by that? Or some version. So you're going to draw the person out to get more detail about their own view. In this case, he's an agnostic. What does that actually mean? There are a lot of people who are atheists who call themselves agnostics now because they are misusing the word agnostic and also the, the concept of being an atheist. An atheist is not somebody who knows there is no God. It is somebody who believes there is no God. A theist is not somebody who knows there is a God. It's someone who believes there is a God. Okay? So your friend may be an atheist who believes there is no God, but he's calling himself an agnostic mistakenly because he thinks that being an atheist has to do with knowledge as opposed to belief. And that's not how that works. So I would suggest that you just draw your friend out more and try to get more information. Find out whether he's a soft agnostic, which would mean he'd be open to evidences, at least initially, or whether he is what I'm calling a hard agnostic, and then they wouldn't be open to evidences because there couldn't be any evidence for something you couldn't know anyway. But then I'm going to press him on the issue of why he thinks 
you can't know about these things. And I'm going to present counterexamples, you know, and uh, try to help him to see that, yes, this could be something you could know about. So how would we know? By the reasons or the justification, and then look at that. So I'd suggest that would be a good place to start. Does that help there, Matt? Yeah, it does. And I actually did ask him some of those questions. Um, and and based on kind of what you've been telling me, I think he's more of a soft agnostic. He's, he told me that um, he's not sure if there's a God or not. Okay. Um, and for him, there just hasn't been enough evidence that would convince him. Oh, oh he's, well, that's he's interesting. Open. He seems open to it. Okay, well, that's good. I got my music up here. So uh, very quickly, though, you might ask him, what evidence has he considered and why wasn't it convincing? So there's a way to go. You can take the next step. Good talking to you, Matthew. Thank you for the call. That's it for the show, friends. Thanks for listening in. And uh, Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give him heaven. All right? Bye-bye now.